for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, at this point, if both of us got abortion wins elections tattooed on our faces, do you think that pundits would get the point? Probably not, but we'd still be right. (laughs) We would still be right, although I don't know if I can advise a face tattoo. No, I mean, probably a bad idea, but I mean, I don't know, maybe on our arms, butts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe they'll get it if they just read it everywhere. (laughs) Alyssa, we've got a fun episode this week. Is it? Does it feel good to record an episode and feel good? It does. It really does. Look, when we were going into the 2023 off-year elections, we we talked about how important they were because there's a lot of stuff going on at the local and state level, even though there aren't federal elections. Um, And, you know, we we were cautiously optimistic because a lot of things we were watching Mm -hmm. were polling favorably for, for us and people who agree with us. But I don't think I was prepared for... Tuesday night's just shower of good news. So I'm excited. We get to talk about Ohio. We get to talk about Virginia. We get to talk about Pennsylvania. We get to talk about Trump's trial. We get to, yeah. And we're joined by Juanita Tolliver, one of our favorites. Yes. An absolute ray of sunshine. All in anticipation of the GOP debate this week. Oh, God. Yeah, talk about a downer. I don't want to, I don't want to do it. I don't know. Nikki Haley's got that new ad. These boots were made for Lion. Maybe she's going to, maybe she's going to bring the high times. She's got she's got some pizzazz. I'll give that to her. Um, and then we have a really fascinating interview with Alison Yarrow, who wrote a book on the business of birth in the U.S. Super enlightening, super infuriating. Exactly the kind of history lesson that we like here at Hysteria. And then, of course, Sanity Corner slash I Feel Petty. So stick around. And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria, the podcast for people who are always going to vote anti-weasel and anti-chode. <laughs> uh, speaking of chodes and weasels, uh, we made a really fun video about the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, wherein we roast him. I'm not sure anyone roasts better than you, Aaron. It is a <laughs> gift that is second to none. I genuflect at your skill. Thank you. Um, it comes from a place of deep self-loathing. But, so thank, thank you. I'm really glad I'm able to externalize it in a way that feels uh, feels productive. But yeah, Mike Johnson, real freak, real weirdo, bad ideas that nobody likes. Um, and you can learn more about why he sucks if you go to Hysteria's channel on YouTube and or go to our show notes and you can find the video. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot. We had a good time. Felt like I needed to take a shower after yeah. reading as much as I'd read about him and his weird porn app that him and his son so share. Gross. So gross. His son's name is Jack. And he what? has an aunt. Like, his son's name is... J- I mean, look. He's a teenage boy named Jack. What like, is Jack like, doing? Like Jack off? 
Yeah, it's just oh, okay. It's, you know, sometimes I'm a little behind. I just had to make sure we were all on the same. Juanita, you hear me? It is. So- I I just was like, oh my god. <laughs> no, if this was a script, if this was an episode of a TV show, and there was a character named Mike Johnson, and him and his son Jack had anti-porn apps on their phone so they could spy on each other, I would be like, change those guys' names. I don't want a Johnson and a Jack involved in this. It's too on the nose. Oh it undermines God. what we're trying to do. Anyway, anyway, um, he's a weirdo. The Speaker of the House is a weird guy. Uh, super excited for our conversation today. Uh, we are ebullient, I would say. Yeah. We are effervescent. We Floating. are upbeat. We are feeling the, the generalized anxiety and neuroses dissipate uh, temporarily. Don't worry, things will be cloudy again in a week. But we're really excited to talk about the incredible election results that Democrats saw on Tuesday across the country. And joining us to talk about all that and maybe, you know, gloat. Yeah. Strut a time a little bit. Just a tad. Joining us is political strategist, opinion writer, MSNBC political analyst, and one of our favorites, in addition to being Crooked's what a Day podcast co-host, Juanita Tolliver. Welcome back to Hysteria. Hi, hi. You all only have me on the good days, and I want to keep that going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a chicken or egg thing. Is it like, because we were we were like, let's get Juanita on before we knew about the election results. Mm, so, but see, I was confident the whole time. People were looking at me crazy when I was on air on TV on Tuesday like on earlier in election day, because I was like, oh, I feel good. I'm hyped. They were like, but what about the poll? What about this? What about uh, abortion being old? I was like, it never gets old. (laughs) It never gets old. And you know why? Because Republicans keep coming with their shitty bands, because they keep attacking our basic rights, and because people will continuously be pissed off by that. So I'm feeling good. I was feeling good early in election day. I'm feeling good now. I mean, isn't isn't that there's an old saying that the definition of insanity is doing something the exact same way over and over again and expecting a different result? And that is literally what we're seeing with Republicans across the country. They they do not get it. They've tried telling us the truth about what they believe. They've tried not talking about it. They've tried straight up lying about it. None of it's worked. Huh. Hmm. It's crazy. And yet they still try it. Alyssa, walk us through what you were most excited about on Tuesday night when when election returns started coming in. Okay, so many things. First, let's talk (laughs) about Glenn Youngkin. The Youngkin Wunkin (laughs) Pumpkin. Do you guys think he's going to have to hang up his finance bro vest for a little bit? I mean, he took it out for a spin. He was, (laughs) he he really was like, he's like, look, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to flip the House and the Senate. We're going to have the trifecta, Republican, 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 and then I'll have to keep my promise and run for president. Well, Glenn, you said it loud enough. Everybody heard you. And Virginia is now still safe for abortions. Democrat House, Democratic Senate. Glenn Youngkin crying tears in his in his closet. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how like absorbent those vests are when it comes to tears, but maybe they should start making them specifically for absorbent like Charmin. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know what is absorbent? Because he not only wears the vest, but he also wears jorts. Like, he's like, I'm a soccer dad in my vest and my jorts, and I'm not harmful in any way. But <laughs> we see you, Glenn Youngkin. We see you. We With see your you, hair swoop and your vest, and you're always smiling, <laughs> and your white teeth. Malevolent villain teeth is what, what he has. What I think was... <laughs> 
<laughs> what I think was really funny about so you know like when a little kid knows a secret and they're not supposed to tell it and you can tell that mm. they're just like oh, I want to say it I want to say it I want to say it you're like don't say the thing um I feel like that's Republicans with abortion so we saw Glenn Youngkin on the more literally I think voting day on the, the last day to vote it on was. voting day knowing knowing that abortion is a losing issue, a yeah. losing issue for Republicans. Yeah. On voting day, you know, Youngkin's sitting there trying to bite on his fists and not say it. He's like, ah, we're going to pass a ban. We're going to ban abortion. Well, we're going to do it. And that was like his closing argument. Like, yes, we can. Voters. Nah, someone tried that, Glenn. No, you can't. We're going we're to do We're going to ban abor- abortion. And then voters were like, okay, well, we don't want you to do that. And so... I mean, not only did Democrats, like you said, Alyssa, hold the House of or hold the state yep. Senate, um, they flipped the House of Delegates. Gorgeous. So mm-hmm. gorgeous. Now instead of of having only one chamber between Yunkin and his beloved abortion ban, now there are two chambers, and it's a complete non-starter. In addition to his presidential campaign probably also being a complete non-starter. And on top of him not being able to ban abortion, Virginia. Virginia elected its first transgender state representative, Danica Rome, with 52% of the vote. (laughs) Guys, do you know what I feel like today is? I feel like the three of us rolled up into one. We're like Oprah and we're giving our 2023 favorite things. This is like, (laughs) and you get a car, you get a car, (laughs) you get an abortion, and you get an abortion. Abortions and healthcare for everybody. (laughs) And you get to kick the weird, creepy member of the state Senate out of your (laughs) stirrups in the OBGYN office. Um, I want to talk about Ohio. Yes. I want to talk about Ohio. This was the one that was the most exciting to me personally. And I think part of that is because I personally have been very down on Ohio since uh, the year 2000. So for a very long time. Okay. Okay. There are Um, a lot of levels to this. Yes. 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 I I think I've been very down on Ohio because I think to the nationwide, Ohio is represented as a very red state where a Republican conservative government is pretty entrenched. But inside Ohio, what's happening is that things are a lot more interesting. And it seems that the gerrymandered Republican state government has gotten a little too cocky and didn't quite understand that they live in a state where a 50 percent vote, 50 percent plus one vote can change the state constitution via a like public referendum. And uh, yeah, so what happened is that representatives in Ohio got so disconnected from the will of the people, they passed a six week abortion ban which people don't like, Mm -hmm. Um, the public was like, all right, we're going to go over you. We're going to leapfrog you. And an an amendment to the Ohio State Constitution uh, guaranteeing abortion access, guaranteeing miscarriage care, guaranteeing all types of uh, reproductive health care passed with 57% of the vote. Which, Erin, what I love about this is that the referendum or the the election in August was about amending the Constitution, so it would have to go up ding, to sixty percent, <laughs> and the, a, any amendment added to the state constitution would have to pass a supermajority of sixty percent. And guess what? It got there on its. It almost got there on its own, all by itself. So also, fuck you twice. I just also got to shout out the organizers on the ground who mm-hmm. had been organizing since last summer against that you know, special election Republicans tried to slip in there in August because they did the damn thing on multiple levels. One, the message was so clear and so effective 
that it was like a foregone conclusion in the minds of voters who were showing up at polls. They're like, of course I'm supporting Ohio, like the first amendment. Like, of course I'm supporting that. And it wasn't even a, th- a doubt. The, the other layer here, though, is what it's been clear, whether it's Kansas, Kentucky, Montana, Michigan, where there have been other uh, ballot initiatives related to abortion care. And that's the reality that Abortion rights transcend demographics. They transcend party affiliation. You saw men turning out for this, majority of men voting for this, Black and Latino voters at 75, 85% supporting this. And then across the ages, that's what I love when I see people 45 plus supporting abortion rights at what? Uh, 80%, no, 70% and 80% among young people. Like that, that's what it's about. And of course, Democrats showed up. Independents also showed up at 64% support of this. And, you know, you got like 20% of Republicans, too, in the mix. So that's what it's going to be every single time. And that's why Republicans will forever lose when it comes to abortion. Also, I wanted to shout out Kelly Copeland, who runs Pro-Choice Ohio. She has been doing this work for 20 years. She told everybody that it was going to happen, meaning that she said, you always got to be careful. They're going to overturn Roe. And then they did. And anyway, so she has now enshrined it in the Ohio Constitution. And yay, Kelly Copeland. Yes. I, I'm going to just say this, not to not to pour cold water on it, because it was a decisive victory. Mm-hmm. Um, I will not put it past and do not put it past the Ohio state government to try to somehow weasel around with this. Of course. Because um, weasels are always going to weasel. Weasels are always going to weasel. And I and I think that it is very ill-advised for them because there are rumblings in Ohio that in 2024, the next constitutional amendment will be an amendment that will take away the right to draw districts from the from a political party and put it in the hands of a nonpartisan panel. So mm. um You know, fuck around and find out, Republicans in Ohio, Mm. because they're about to – I feel like a political realignment of the state of Ohio is happening before our eyes. It's really exciting. It's got to be very terrifying if you're a Republican who thought you could just do whatever you wanted to whoever you wanted and suffer no political consequences whatsoever because the chickens are coming home to roost. The chickens are are coming home. Welcome to repercussions. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, Also, Ohio – legalized recreational marijuana, uh, which is super cool for them Yes, um, and really exciting. It won with about the same percentage as the uh, right to abortion won. The the marijuana legislation is a law, not a constitutional amendment. So the the state legislature has a little bit more leeway in what they can do to it than they can do to a constitutional amendment, but pretty exciting stuff. Um, Let's move on to Pennsylvania. Good news there, too. Alyssa, yes. what, what do we got out of Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania first. Sherelle Parker wins mayor of yes. Philadelphia, 74%. <laughs> she is Philadelphia's 100th mayor and the first woman ever. That's one of those things where it's like, yeah, yay. Yay. Uh, like, I glad mean, it happened. Sad it yeah. took so long. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's like returning a library book 15 years after it was due. It's like, well, thank you for bringing it back, but you should have brought it back a while ago. Should have brought it back a while ago. And then also, Erin, something we've been talking about, Pennsylvania has had a state Supreme Court election all about saving democracy in the general, saving abortion. 
Daniel McCaffrey, the Democrat, wins with 52.9% of the vote right now. That means that the makeup of the court is 5-2. Yeah. And I think in 2025, there were some kind of key elections coming up that if McCaffrey hadn't won, um, there would have been a bunch of different ways the Republicans could have taken control over the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court and held on to control until like 2031, which isn't a year, right? That year doesn't no. exist. No. no, 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 it does not. We're not going that far. We're not we'll going to cut far. it off. <laughs> <laughs> that's not. Sometimes I look at years that are and I'm like, that's not a that's not a real year. 2031. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I also had some fun, some fun, like personal news in in Pennsylvania. Um, my brother-in-law's sister, Jill Beck, won a judgeship in Whoa! the Superior Court. That was exciting. Sister, sister-in-law. Um, my, yeah. My, one of my, my, my brother's wife's sister, we call each other sister-in-law-la. So I guess that's what it's. I love it. Yeah. But congratulations to Judge Beck because that's super exciting and, and yes. very fun. Um, let's move on. What do you want to talk about? Next, Juanita, you're the guest. What, what uh, else comes to mind? Can we talk about the blatant voter suppression in Mississippi? Yeah, talk Ooh, about yes. in Mississippi, where they provided extremely limited numbers of ballots to predominantly black precinct locations where, you know, police officers casually strolled through the parking lot of the local NAACP and took down license plates and ran people's tags or set up their cars outside the entrance to Jackson State University to try to deter people from voting because that's what's happening in Mississippi right now. And I know that, um, Brandon Presley was able to file a request successfully to extend polls ban opening in some of these locations where you had people waiting two and three hours in line. And every time the precincts ran out of ballots, the secretary of state only sent a hundred more at a time. So it's just like the most blatant form of voter suppression that we need to get to the bottom of because when we talk about democracy as a theme for 2024, this needs to be one of the battlegrounds for that fight. Like, I know Democrats tend to look at Mississippi and are like, hey, nothing to really do there. Turnout's only about 40%, but why? Turnout's typically only 40% in Mississippi because they don't allow early in-person voting. They extremely restrict absentee and vote-by-mail options. So literally, people only have that one day where polls close typically at, what, 6 Mm p.m.? So if you couldn't get out of work, if you couldn't find childcare, if you couldn't just get there through transportation, then you were just unable to vote. You were disenfranchised. And so what we're seeing in Mississippi needs to be addressed at a national level. So every microphone I'm in front of for the next year and a half, y'all will hear me talk about this. (laughs) Good. I mean, I think it's one of those one of those situations that's that thrives on hopelessness Mm -hmm. because period. Because because in order for this to continue, people just need to be like, oh, it's Mississippi, whatever. It's Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Like, they're never going to vote Democrat. They're never going to vote Democrat. And I think that a lot of people are kind of guilty of just kind of dismissing it. But when there's a light shown on it and when we see the lengths that people are going to suppress the vote, specifically the black vote in Mississippi, um, I think that that kind of is like, no, actually, this isn't a hopeless hopeless place. This is a place where injustice is being done and needs to be righted. And also, you know, Juanita, when you're, t- when you're talking about like police taking down license plates and, and, and in, right. like being intimidating, it sort of reminds me of, you know, a lot of times election years, especially off years, people will say things like, and they're usually privileged people, will say things like, well, I'm not going to vote. It doesn't matter. If voting doesn't matter, if voting doesn't matter, if voting doesn't matter, then why are people willing to resort to such violence to prevent people from voting? Right. Voting absolutely matters. That part. 
Yeah. Um, okay, Kentucky. You want to talk about Kentucky, Alyssa? Sure. Governor Bashir. This is such <laughs> incredible news. And, you know, as is the case with every election night, you start watching polls close, results start to trickle in. And you're like, where's Louisville? Where are the it was it was looking very Daniel Cameron at the outset. You're like, oh no, what's gonna happen? But Governor Annie Bashir wins with 52.5% of the vote in Kentucky. He is only the third two-term governor in Kentucky history. And yeah, wasn't his dad the one of the yeah, others? And he's a Democrat. <laughs> uh, um yeah, that was super exciting. And he was running against a person that was uh, pretty contemptible. Mm. Juanita, what do you make of Bashir's uh, opponent, Cameron? I love that you come to me for this, right? <laughs> so so Daniel Cameron did not seek any form of justice when it came to the murder of Breonna Taylor, who actively fought for the statewide abortion ban in Kentucky, right? Just a contemptible, horrible dude. And so I wasn't rooting for him. I definitely didn't want him to get anywhere near the governor's office. But what I knew going into this race is that he actually never had a shot. You know why? Because mm. Andy Brashear had a 60% approval rating, again, that transcended partisan lines. And so when you go into a race with that, it makes sense that he walked away with 52% of the vote. It also makes sense that Brashear won this race by, what, five percentage points mm -hmm. thus far. Uh, but in 2019, y'all, he only won by 0.4 percentage points. Like, oh. he expanded the margin by doing such a good job that someone like Daniel Cameron absolutely never had a shot. Mm -hmm. And something that I noticed, this is always happens and it's irksome, but after elections where there's a like upside surprise for Democrats, um, people are trying to extrapolate lessons that apply to yeah. the entire country. <laughs> um, and like J we had James Carville uh, being like, mm. Andy Bashir is, is the most talented politician since like Bill Clinton, which means <laughs> maybe, maybe Bashir would have been president in the 90s. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's important for us as like media consumers to... Uh, to take all of the sort of punditry enthusiasm, exuberance, or like thirst to come up with some giant conclusion or storyline with like a huge grain of salt. Like this is the story of what happened in Kentucky. A person did a good job and was well-liked by a lot of people and he was rewarded for doing a good job and being well-liked for a lot of people. I don't think that means that like Andy Bashir should be the Secretary of State. You know what I mean? I, I Definitely feel like not. <laughs> the people, I mean, I just, I just pulled that completely no, out of my ass. But that doesn't mean that Andy Bashir should run for president. That doesn't mean it means that he did a good job for the people of Kentucky and the people of Kentucky. And he period. should stay there to do a good job for the people of Kentucky. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. That's the thing. We can't pluck it reminds these people me of, out. Um, uh, Michigan's Mallory McMurrow, one of our mm -hmm. favorites, super talented young legislator in the state of Michigan um, is not running for the open Senate mm -hmm. seat in Michigan next year. And she's like, there's there's work to do in Michigan. I mm -hmm. want to do work for the people in Michigan. And I think it's really important for us to understand the value of talented, competent politicians who do work at the local and state level. We don't want them all at the federal level. They can no. like barely do anything compared to like the impact. We don't need a 20-way Democratic primary. <laughs> no, we sure do not. Um, Let's talk about uh, Texas. Texas seems uh, the homestead tax exemption uh, won mm -hmm. pretty big time. Um, it looks like John Whitmire and Sheila Jackson Lee are headed to a right. runoff in the Houston mayoral race. 
And uh, the results for the Uvalde mayor race was uh, disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the people that was defeated in the race was a mother of a child who was killed in the Uvalde massacre, and and she did not end up winning the race. Um, let's pivot a little bit to, <laughs> I guess there was a lot of like cable news heads exploding. Not yours, Juanita, because you saw it coming. No. Never I yours. I stay level. I stay level. <laughs> <laughs> um, we saw a lot of heads exploding and, and, you know, pants on fire and people just running around screaming with their hands in the air over some poll results that came out uh, in the last few days. Basically, uh, Joe Biden is trailing Donald Trump in five of the six most important battleground states a year out from the 2024 election. Um, And yet, despite this, Democrats had a clean sweep almost last Mm -hmm. night. In all of the races that we could reasonably hope to win, we won. Alyssa, what's going on? Uh, A lot of Americans think Joe Biden's old. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that's it? I think that this is just a very contentious time. I do think that, you know, I on the one hand, I wish this is just a perspective, I guess, that I have. It's like Donald Trump, the fact that people in polls think that Joe Biden is too old, but Donald Trump is not, blows my mind because Joe Biden is currently the acting, pre- he is the president. He is dealing with a million things. Trump's only job is to blow dry his hair and show up for trial every day. That is his only job. He's not even campaigning. He has one job. And I think that, you know, so yeah, does Biden look more tired? And yeah, he does because he's actually working and doing shit like 20 hours a day. And Trump is just trying through the course of dealing with 90 plus indictments to stay out of prison. (laughs) Juanita, what do you make of the bad polling versus the good results? I mean, I think the polling is something that I will never get hype about polling, (laughs) y'all. Never. (laughs) Especially a year out. But I do think it represents a growth opportunity, if you will, for Democrats. And I say that because Biden's campaign made a conscious decision to not spend the second half of 2023 on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. They said, we're going to focus on the job of the presidency. And this is one of those drawbacks without the increased visibility while Republicans are looking stupid every week, every day, whether it's the debate stage or the campaign trail. You don't really have the day to day juxtaposition that could warrant, you know, a higher degree of voter support or voter buy in. And so once he gets out on the campaign trail, demonstrates that physical fitness because campaigning is hard. y'all. Campaigning is exhausting. Like, oof. once he demonstrates that. Every single day while also doing the job of the presidency, I can see a lot of this changing because you know what did come through, even though Biden was very hands off in these um, 2023 elections, his policies shine through. Mm-hmm. Andy Brashear was front and center talking about, oh, investments in transportation. Look at these bridges. Look at these train tracks. All of that. That's what's going to be key here. So. Biden on the campaign trail telling people explicitly what he delivered by pointing to it because, you know, we're a we're a visual learners in this country. <laughs> so when he's standing out there pointing at this beautiful train or this beautiful new facility, like that's going to be key. And I got to mm-hmm. tell you something, Juanita, to that point that uh, I have been on you know, insurgent campaigns. I got to be on a campaign when Mm. Barack Obama, you know, was not president. And then I got to be on the reelect. Let me tell you something. 
reelect way worse because when yeah. you're running, you know, if you are any of these, you know, nuts running for the Republican nomination, you can point out all the problems and say, this is how I'm going to fix them. When you're running as the incumbent, you have to say, yeah, there are still problems, which you own because you're the president. And here's mm-hmm. how we're also going to fix them. So if he's trying to talk about things to help the economy, he is he is implicitly saying the economy could be better. And that right. is never easy. And the one thing even, you know, I will say that in 2004, when I was on the Kerry campaign, we were doing okay. But when election day came, America was like, I don't know, I think we got to stick with the devil we know. You know, so it's it's especially when you are running against an incumbent. I always think that polls are a great way to act out because you're mad. But, you know, it's definitely a wake up call to the Bidens. You go tossing to you, Juanita. One more thing about polls. Get into these cross tabs because every time we see a negative number about the economy, go to the line where it says, how do you feel about your personal financial situation? Sixty percent are satisfied or doing better than expected. Mm -hmm. That's what kills me. Mm-hmm. They right. have this personal perspective, but when it comes to the big map, when it comes to everybody else, they know apparently they think they're struggling. And so when, when Democrats can bridge that divide of like, no, you're 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 OK, mm-hmm. like that, that'll be clear. Yeah, I also think, you know, I agree with both of you that the polls are super flawed and it's very frustrating as somebody who has worked in media since like the 2012 election to watch uh, us collectively, you know, as as members of the media and as members of the public, just step on a field of rakes when it comes to polls over yep. and over again. Like <laughs> I every, see the cartoon visual. <laughs> yes, every damn time. So here's the thing: just because you are not satisfied with how the president, you know, you're not, you don't really like what the president's doing, doesn't mean you're like going to choose to replace him. And and Alyssa, you brought up George W. Bush's second mm-hmm. term. I think he had a like there were periods of time where he didn't have a great approval rating in the run-up to the 2004 election. Not at all. But he still won because people were like, I don't know, I don't want to test. We're we're in the middle of a war. Right. Um, I don't want to test out, you know. On the other hand, I would say that if I were Joe Biden or somebody who worked for him or somebody who cared about him getting elected and my livelihood dependent on it, I would say that Joe Biden needs to do a lot more to convince millennials and Gen Z to vote for him than he's currently doing. And here's 100%. why. Because people, A, his uh, his administration's response to what's happening in Gaza right now has been unacceptable to a lot of people who are a millennial and Gen Z. Um, Michigan has more Arab American voters than the number of votes Joe Biden won by in 2020. Mm. Um, he needs to do a better job reaching out to people in his party who want him to more strongly condemn the way that the Israeli military is acting in Gaza right now. So that's one thing. Second thing, um, I think that millennials, you know, Juanita, you brought up people's personal finances and how they're doing. I think older people are doing just great. Right. They're doing great. But millennials right now, there is a lot. I mean, and I'm one of them. I would love to own a home. I would love to. But I absolutely can't right now because, first of all, I live in Southern California and, like, every bungalow is a million dollars and that's ridiculous. I refuse to, like, to pay that much money for a bungalow. But second of all, interest rates are so high and housing is so expensive. Come on. 
And it is not, the supply of housing is not being increased. The supply of affordable housing is not being increased in any way that benefits younger people who want to buy a home or access home ownership in one way or another. Um, also, health care. Health care is a, is a problem. Student loans. That's something that, you know, there is a... That's the part. There is mm-hmm. a, there's a workaround right now for people that are experiencing a lot of uh, a lot of pain from student loans, but that's not as well publicized as Biden's original student loan forgiveness that the Supreme Court struck down. Um, I, I think that Biden needs to make a better case to millennial and Gen Z voters that he hears their concerns, he cares about their opinions, because I think the worst thing that could happen to Biden is too many of us stay home. That's right. that's how that's how we lose in 2024, and. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't really think that it's a I don't I don't think that it's a rational choice to be like, oh, well, I don't like Joe Biden doing like, you know, I don't like that. I still have to pay my student loans. I'm just not going to vote. I don't think that that's like great um, to make a choice that enables Trump to waltz back into the White House. But I see that as a choice that a lot of people will make, whether or not it is rational. So, yeah. That's that's my that's my sort of I appreciate the hard reality like it's a splash of cold water because it and I think now is the time to have that conversation. And I I do think about the student loan specifically. And I was like, hmm. So we're restarting payments October 2023. Well, I guess that's better than October 2024. You know, like I'm thinking through the logic Hmm. of what the campaign or what the administration is thinking here, because you're right. A lot of people I know are looking at this like, oh, there's there's really no benefit for me here. I think the other saving grace in part of this equation is looking at somebody like who got a mug like Donald Trump, yeah. <laughs> who is facing 91 federal criminal charges, right? Like that, I think, is what it comes back to is the comparison there. I do think we are still going to see a depression in voter turnout. And that's just a reality. But to hang on to what he's got, you're absolutely right, Aaron. He needs to better communicate, better recognize his shortcomings and provide solutions, provide better solutions. You know how he could win, honestly, if he I mean, this would motivate a ton of people to vote for him. Um, Family leave. Make oh, it without fucking question. happen. Mm. Without question. Make it mm. happen. Make paid family leave happen. Not just for parents, but for anybody who's anybody who's taking care of somebody else in their family, whether it's a disabled right. spouse, sibling, parent, whatever. Parent. Fucking right. family leave. It is barbaric that we don't have it. It is unacceptable that we don't have it. It's ridiculous that Maserati Mansion, Joe Mansion, was able to <laughs> I was single-handedly. Like, Houseboat Mansion. Yeah, yeah, he drives a Maserati that is so, I'm sorry, I'm not a car person, but I know Maseratis suck. I'll take him in my Subaru <laughs> any day. Not the Subaru, Alyssa. <laughs> That's right, I brought if out Joe the Manchin, If Joe Manchin drove a Subaru, I would be like, maybe he's a reasonable person. Maybe he can be convinced. <laughs> but he drives a Maserati. It's like, this guy. Um, anyway, I, I, I think that, like, paid family leave or some form yeah. of relief for the extreme cost of uh, medical care would, would make a, a huge difference. Um, but, you know. We, you know, we can wish all we want. It's just, you know, we'll see if they actually listen to us. But <laughs> I'm just like, do um, it. You ain't got nothing else to lose. Just do it. Yeah, <laughs> I, know. I know. Like, okay, so you literally don't have anything else to lose. So what the Chamber of Commerce makes a bunch of ads where like actresses being like, I'm a concerned mom and I need to go to work and not have, you know, I don't want to stay home with my kids. Meh. Like they're going to make a bunch of dumb ads that are an astroturfed fake gra- grassroots campaign, making it seem like family leave is not one of the most popular things that doesn't currently exist right. in America. 
Um, but I, why can't we just why why aren't we all Ohio? This is the first time I've ever said that sentence, but wow, I would love it if we could pass 50% <laughs> plus one vote. I wish that we could amend the U.S. Constitution by doing that because we would have a lot of a lot more nice things than we currently have. Mm-hmm. Um, Alyssa, let's talk Trump trial. What's going on? Let's talk We're about it. We're getting a little. We're, um, not entirely, Aaron, because I was so obsessed with Ivanka testifying today at the civil fraud trial here in New York that I have had the TV on because I knew they would be taking a break around lunchtime and we would get some gossip. So Trump's on trial in New York, civil fraud trial. Tish James not having any of it. It sounds like absolute chaos happening in the courtroom. Donald Trump cannot contain himself. Keep saying <laughs> wild shit, which then prompts the attorney general, who is a very serious person, to laugh at him because he is so outrageous. <laughs> one of my favorite cut, one of my favorite readouts from the trial, it was either yesterday or the day before, was when the judge asked him, about his handling of certain documents uh, in 2021. And he said, I was very busy with the foreign affairs as I was president. He's like, you were literally not president in 2020. <laughs> he hadn't been president. Massive yikes. <laughs> and we're talking about age here. Check this man. That's Check what I'm saying. Man. If you don't know what you did with your documents three years ago, you should you should stop with calling other people old or having dementia. <laughs> That's why I think he was like, I think he was playing president for a lot of his time that he was there. He was like, you know, like a little kid playing office. Oh, yeah. He watched a couple 100%. movies. He watched some Harrison Ford movies. He watched a little West Wing. He's like, I got this. And just repeated stupid statements and got in and out of cars and out of the plane and thought that he was doing the job of president. Let us not forget oh, when he was God. tweeting at Kim Jong-un. You know, that was always great. <laughs> But oh, he Where, do you being, have one of the millennial med, or the the medallions, the commemorative uh, medals from the Kim Jong Un decided meeting? not to decided not oh, okay. to okay okay <laughs> thought that was something best got on eBay years later oh um, that's gold that's gold people who really have that that's but here's, that's ironic gold this is like the ama- this is tremendous one his sons in their testimony over the past couple of days have distanced themselves from uh being attached to any of the tomfoolery that he did and how he valued his assets and to remind everybody who's not following this closely the fraud tra- the fraud trial can essentially be boiled down to the fact that if you're someone who has a 1,000-square-foot apartment that's worth $100,000, but because you lived in it, you told them it was worth $100 million and therefore got a loan to that effect and insurance to that effect, that's fraud. That's what Donald Trump did. He inflated square footage of places he owned. He, he outrageously uh, inflated value to the one point saying that because he lived at Mar-a-Lago, he knew a Saudi who would have paid like $400 million for it. None of, didn't he say like billions of yeah, dollars? Yeah, there is nothing legal about any of that. What? That is not how people do business. That is fraud, which is why he is on trial for fraud. Um, the part as people consider voting for him is that he's literally feigned ignorance to anything brought before him. He's like, I don't know. Could have happened. Is that what you want in a president? Morals aside, because we know his morals. But, like, he doesn't remember anything he did for the last 20 years. And you know who else doesn't remember anything, it seems? Ivanka. 
So as uh, the court is on recess right now, the news out of New York City was that Ivanka has distanced herself from the inflated value of the penthouse she leased from her dad. And also she's doing some jiggery pokery around that $2 billion Deutsche Bank loan. Because remember, so much of this relates to his uh, dealings with Deutsche Bank. And apparently she is the one who made the connection for him at Deutsche Bank. Oh. So... It's crazy here in New York, but people are enjoying it, including the courtroom sketch artist. <laughs> oh, yeah. That picture of Donald Trump melting like a candle. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like he's that Carvel clown cake and they left him out. The drama. The, 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 party, the party is long since over and his cone nose is on the floor. Oh. <laughs> Cookie puss. Isn't it Cookie Cookie puss. puss. Cookie puss. I- Good work. I have to Google this. I've never heard. It of is a region. It's an it's a regional New York thing, and mm-hmm. it's super weird. And Delicious. I thought the people. Oh, and I'm startled. <laughs> yeah, I'm very uncomfortable. Let me close this tab. <laughs> oh my god. Um. So, Alyssa, what happens if, like, what happens at the end of this trial, this civil trial in New York? Okay. So at the end of the trial, here's what could happen. If Trump is found guilty and uh, his children have abandoned ship and no one defends him, Trump could get his business licenses permanently revoked in the state of New York, which would be catastrophic. Trump Inc. would cease to exist if that happened. He could also have huge fines and stuff like that. But the most important thing is that he and his sons and people associated with the Trump organization could be barred from doing business in New York State. At what point do you think Ivanka changes her name? How many years Listen, out? Listen, <laughs> she already moved to Florida. <laughs> she moved to Florida. She's distancing herself. Mm-hmm. She's no longer involved in politics. I think she she's going to Kim Kardashian's birthday party. All um, the time. Uh, how long until she's Ivanka Kushner? Uh, I feel like Ivanka Kushner is just right around the corner. I feel like pre-2024, there'll be a new Instagram handle. But Erin, the whole thing that makes me laugh about all of this, uh, everything happening down in Manhattan is that, do you remember months ago, maybe it wasn't even months ago, time has no meaning to me anymore, when we were like, oh, it's Trump's birthday. Let's see what Ivanka posted. And the only thing she posted to celebrate her father's birthday were a few pictures in the caption, I hope what you I hope you get what you deserve this year. I hope you have the year you deserve. That you deserve. And I feel like her dreams are coming true. He is indeed getting the year she deserves. <laughs> the question is, Erin, will Ivanka get the year we think she deserves? No, mm. and I think she's going to feel entitled to our forgiveness for the rest of her life. She's going to feel entitled to being able to move along, like, around in polite society. She's going to feel entitled to be treated like an American princess. Um, it's it, it, And, like, here's the thing. I think that the 2023 elections and every election since Dobbs has proven that female anger has longevity. It has durability mm. and longevity. We tend to and our I grudges. Think, indeed. And I don't think that we're going to forget very quickly— we didn't forget what the Supreme Court did. I don't think we're going to forget what she did. Um, nope. and, and so however, you know, however quickly she thinks she can come back and be part of, uh, of some sort of functional, socially acceptable entity, um, multiply that time period by three, and then maybe we'll talk Ivanka. That's my prediction. Um, okay, one more thing. Republican debate happening 
on Wednesday night. We are recording this oh, on no. Wednesday morning. Mm. I almost hate to ask, but any predictions, Juanita? Everybody on the stage will lose. <laughs> like, none of them will be the next president. Like I, I do feel like uh, I, I do look forward to Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy like going at yes. it because I think they're funny. Mm-hmm. They're the new um, Pete and Amy for sure. The Pete, yes, you know, they are the new Pete and Amy. One hundred percent. I think uh, DeSantis will continue to Homer Simpson into the bushes with his high heels on, and Chris Christie will keep screaming at people who don't want to listen. Like that's it. It's the same thing. It's the same thing as every other time. You know, the one yeah. thing that was interesting about some of the polls that came out this week is that something like north of sixty percent of respondents, not Democrats, but all respondents, said that if Trump were convicted in any one of these trials, they would find it disqualifying. So I do watch the debate and think, if not him, then who? (sighs) And I will say, I mean, look, I'm in upstate New York. I don't know where these ads are coming from, but I have a bunch of (laughs) Nikki Haley ads this morning on TV. Interesting. That are like, these boots are made for lying and they're all anti-DeSantis. And I was like, you know what? (laughs) Girl, you got money. I'm into it. Spend that money. I'm into it. Spend that money. (laughs) Nikki. Nikki. Okay. Fine, Nikki. I'll allow it. That is so funny. Yeah. Um, I love the petty. It's so petty. You know, the thing about the season is, for petty. Tis, tis the season <laughs> to be petty. The, I don't care. Here's the thing. It doesn't really matter if men are short. It matters if they're awful and they feel bad about being short. Then, if they're awful people and they feel bad about being short, then it's fine to make fun of them for it. Just yeah. like it's fun. That's what a read is. A read is picking up on what your opponent feels bad about and saying it to them. That's just a read. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, I've got to give it to Nikki for for going there. That's yeah. that's great. That's that's great. Um, I think at the next debate, they should just ask everyone to wear flip-flops on stage so we can totally. finally put it to a rest whether or not DeSantis is wearing lifts and shoes. <laughs> All right, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got a fascinating interview with Alison Yarrow, who wrote a book on the business of birth in the U.S. And it's more relevant than ever, given the fact that there are so many people in state governments trying to force women into birth. And there are so many people at the federal level also trying for the same thing. So examining the practice of birth, how we got here and all the problems with it, super important. So stick around. Hysteria is brought to you by Karyuma. Karyumas have been our go-to sneakers for a while now. I'm wearing them right now because they're really comfortable, go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. I love and wear Karyuma sneakers all the time. I mean, like I said. I'm Who doesn't? Wearing them right now. I gift them. Everyone's getting Karyumas and has Karyumas. I've gifted best. Karyumas and I've never gotten a single complaint And they always say they really like them, and they're very comfortable, and they look really nice. Last year, we collaborated with Karyuma to create No Steps Back sneakers, and we can't believe they have now designed a second limited edition collaboration with us, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. These shoes have a colorful design with lots of Easter eggs. I mean, not Taylor Swift-level Easter eggs. We're not insane. Just fun stuff like Pundit on a surfboard. Oh, I got to pet Pundit today. Oh, that's fun. It was really nice. Plus, a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. 
Our first Karayuma collab sold out super fast, so if you want a pair for yourself or the Love It or Leave It fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season with free returns. Just head to crooked.com slash store. That's crooked.com slash store. This episode of Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Need the perfect Mother's or Father's Day gift? Check out Viore Performance Apparel. Drawing inspo from the coastal California lifestyle, Viore's products inspire others to live vibrant, active lives. I love that they're calling this the coastal California lifestyle. I will embrace that instead of what I thought it was, which was the I only want to wear comfortable clothes lifestyle. Yeah. I have to. I refuse to be uncomfortable I refu- if I want to be productive. <laughs> I refuse to be uncomfortable, but sometimes I have to look like I belong in a respectable place lifestyle, which is like yeah. Viore is perfect for it because they the clothes look fantastic. They fit great. They are so comfortable. I lie down in mine all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, Erin, the women's performance joggers. They have a slim but relaxed fit and are designed with dream knit stretch fabric. I love my joggers. I've slept in mine. I've slept in them. Really? You don't get hot? No. They're very, like, on a a couch nap. You know, you have, like, a— Oh, yeah. You've got, like, maybe a half an hour in the afternoon. You're like, ooh, I've got a, like, small break. I'm very tired. I'm going to just, like, lay down for 20 minutes. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect for couch napping. Joggers. I love the leggings. I can work out in them. I can do my errands in them. I can wear them with a proper top to a business meeting. It is not a problem. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you probably could. Just put yeah, a, a totally. blazer and like— Denim shirt. Denim, denim shirt, oh, blazer, yeah. leggings. So easy. 100%. And, of course, the men's core shorts. They have a classic athletic fit, falling just above the knee, while the Sunday performance joggers are made from recycled performance stretch fabric. I got my dad some men's core shorts. He wears them to mow the lawn. That's perfect. He is, like, I think my my dad is one of those people that just, like, beats the crap out of his clothes. He'll wear them until they're— they look like a security blanket that a 30-year-old yep. still has where it's just like a ball of string and you're like, um, Our dads are the same. Yeah, yeah. But um, my dad has had his for like a couple years now and I think I, I saw him wearing them the other week when I met up with um, family on a, on a short weekend trip and they still looked great. It was like, Dad, your clothes still look new. <laughs> so fancy. Viore is offering Hysteria listeners 20% off your first purchase. Get some of the most comfy and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. You'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, 
You'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails Tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. And welcome back. You're listening to Hysteria, the podcast where we like history lessons that make us smarter and madder. (laughs) Today's guest is a journalist, producer, and speaker. Her new book, Birth Control, The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood, is out and available wherever you get books. Allison Yarrow, welcome to Hysteria. Thanks for having me. So first off, book was fascinating. Book was infuriating. What prompted you to write it? What prompted me to write the book was going through the experience of having a child in this country three times, twice in a hospital environment, and once planned at home. And what I realized in sort of preparing for my first birth was that even though I have been a journalist for almost two decades in newsrooms and I covered abortion law and policy, and I'm very awake and aware to the ways in which our systems are shaped by patriarchy and by white supremacy, I just didn't really believe that that was going to touch my pregnancy and my birth. And that was a completely naive thing to think. But taking, you know, a childbirth preparation class with my husband, I started to realize that all of the framing was around what we could do to protect ourselves against the providers we had chosen to attend our birth and the place where we had chosen to deliver our baby, which was the hospital, which is where about 99% of people give birth to their children. And just going to the experience of thinking that I had bodily autonomy, knowing what I wanted to have happen in my birth experience, and then sort of being cajoled and sort of swayed to do things that weren't exactly what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I I just had a baby. She just turned two this week. So I didn't just have a baby, but you know, Mm -hmm. time flies. Um, And I remember feeling the same way. Like, why do I have to oh, so they don't need to do cervical checks on me? They're totally unnecessary, and they don't really tell anybody anything and they're for the convenience of the provider entirely? Like, wh- what? And having to put together a birth plan that was like, please don't do this thing that you're going to try to do, and I'm going to have to argue with you against doing it. It's like wild. It is wild. And you're totally right about how many things that you're like, oh, this is for the convenience of the hospital. This is so that the provider doesn't get sued in case something goes wrong. This is for like somebody else's convenience. This is for my insurance company. And very little of it felt like it was for the birthing person. Yes, everything that you're saying and more. The system that we are birthing in is broken. And the reason that it's broken, I surveyed about 1,300 people about their birth experiences in addition to doing deep reporting with experts and looking into the data on this stuff. And what I found time and time again, and it took me a while to piece it all together, was that we are giving birth in a system that is operating based in tradition, not in the best scientific evidence. So when you walk in the door of the hospital, you go to triage, you're in labor. Everything that starts to happen to you from that cervical check that you mentioned, Aaron, from the, you know, sort of that's what you need to get entry into the hospital. They need to check your cervix and see how dilated you are, even though there's no standard agreed upon amount of dilation that says, okay, now a baby is going to come in this amount of time. So from that to you are admitted, you're hooked up to an electronic fetal monitor, which is technology that's in almost every childbirth, but is based in zero evidence. It was sort of a 
it got into hospitals um, from marketers, from people who sort of didn't have the science to back it up. They sort of said, let's test this on women and see how it works. It's been a really addictive technology for hospitals and for providers to get rid of because they can watch multiple labors from a remote location. So that's not based in evidence. Then they're going to try to put you on Pitocin. Maybe you want Pitocin and that's fine. But if you don't, and if it's to start a labor or to speed up contractions that haven't really started going yet, and you don't realize, I mean, it can be a really challenging experience. So that's not based in evidence either. And then say, you know, you are taking too long or the doctor is ready to go home and have dinner. Perhaps they're going to suggest surgery, whether or not you need it. And that's also not based in evidence. So basically everything, they call this the cascade of interventions. All of this stuff that we think of as put in place to protect us and to keep us safe, to keep our babies safe, is actually not rooted in any good evidence. So, Allison, as someone who has never birthed, uh, I found the history of the industry and culture around birth that you address in birth control fascinating. Can you describe how birth once looked versus how it looks now? Absolutely. So in this country, sort of when it was founded, birth was a tradition and a sacrament that was for women. That was sort of women were experiencing it. Women were attending it. Women of all ages, girls would sort of be part of the experience of birth. And it was really this beautiful spiritual tradition. And what happened was sort of as you know, white men traveled to Europe to get medical degrees before there were medical schools in this country. They came back to the to the U.S. to set up their practices. And what was needed here in America in terms of healthcare was was birth care. And so midwives were very happy to share their techniques and share what they knew. Midwives attended births at this time, sort of universally, and they didn't learn in medical school how to attend a birth. They just attended thousands and thousands of births. That's how they learned apprenticeship. And so when the doctors came along and said, you know, we want to help, they taught them how to attend birth. And eventually, you know, they sort of worked side by side, but eventually doctors, you know, sort of studied um, in the obstetrics methods and wanted to use tools and arts and drugs. And we know how to make this safer and we know how to do this better. And so it evolved so that male doctors stole birth from midwives, eventually putting it in a hospital environment at the turn of the century, promising women that this would be a safer experience and a better experience, but because of puerperal fever, which you know we didn't understand sort of the history of bacteria and that hand-washing was life-saving, you know, puerperal fever killed so many people in the hospital environment, whereas people who were still birthing at home with midwives were were safe and spared. So this history of sort of doctors, male doctors, people who never have and never will give birth, coming in and beginning to control this process in the body, uh, converting it into a procedure in the hospital, really is still so evident in the way that we birth today. Mm-hmm. It reminded me a little bit of how, like, spirituality and religion was stolen from women and <laughs> we were called witches and bad stuff happened to us. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it reminded me very much of that sort of a, a, a theft uh, in pursuit of, of profit. Can we talk a little bit more about some of the upsetting history of obstetrics? I think a lot of people don't quite know how bad it is. Yeah, so, I mean, obstetrics— The thing about obstetrics that's important to know today, and this is tied to the history question, is that 
When people go to medical school to study obstetrics, the first thing that they learn is how to perform a C-section. They learn how to deal with the most high-risk pregnancy, and they have very little access to what actual physiologic birth looks like. So that's why, even if you, like Aaron, you said you wrote out your birth plan, even if you write out a birth plan and you say, you know, I'd really prefer to avoid cesarean section, episiotomy, these surgical procedures in my birth— Even if you say those things, doctors don't exactly know what physiologic birth looks like. They haven't had those experiences. So that is why you are more likely to have a C-section or an episiotomy based upon your doctor's and hospital's rates of those procedures, not anything to do with your body or your risk or your baby or theirs. It's really about sort of what they do and what they know how to do. Um, Speaking to this, there's a really interesting study about perineal tearing. So Sometimes during labor, people experience tearing, and there really are ways to prevent this, but the positions that, you know, obstetricians want you to be in while you're giving birth, sort of, you know, supine on your back, actually, it it closes the pelvic outlet, making it more difficult for you to give birth, but it's easier for them to see. So that's why they like it. They like it because they can just see better. Um, But there was a study that showed that sort of a hot compress, if you use a hot compress on the perineum, that would, you know, sort of stretch somebody and make it, like, less likely that they would tear. But they actually don't totally know whether it's the compress that um, prevents the tearing or if it's just that doctors' hands are kept busy applying that compress so that they won't cut you. They don't really know what the difference is. Mm-hmm. I um, I was really you know saddened by all of the anecdotes and stories and research that you had on how traumatic birth was for so many women. Because, of course, like for a lot of my friends, it was the same same deal. You know, they had some sort of unexpected complication that was handled in a way that they wouldn't have preferred. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, my I love my OBGYN. Um, her C-section rate is super low. It's like one of the things that she talks about. She's super like, if you want to give birth in a birth center, she's like, go for it. I got a midwife I can recommend. She has like a list of doulas. And, you know, she was, she attended my child's birth and she was amazing. And it it makes me feel like, you know, there are good birth professionals out there, and it's even it's so frustrating to see that bad ones continue on, given the fact that there are several examples of how to be good at it. Yeah, no, I'm so glad to hear that you had that experience of someone that you trusted really taking care of you. It's it's interesting. It's really less, I think, about sort of um, individual bad providers than it is about a system that makes it nearly impossible for people who go into this profession because they are heroes. They want to take care of people while they bring life into the world. And that is so commendable. Um, and yet they're really thwarted in this system. Um, they're, they're kind of forced into making decisions based around sort of avoiding litigation or profit incentives. I mean, that would be a huge change in this space, would be to disincentivize all of the intervention, sort of decouple it from profit. Um, C-section is sort of one of the most common surgeries in the country. Maternity care is some of the most expensive care that's taking place in a hospital setting. And this just sets everyone out everyone up for failure. Um, I found, you know, in in some research by Cheryl Beck, who's a nurse and also um, has spent decades looking at at birth trauma numbers, she found that about 45% of people describe their birth experience as traumatic. And that's so high. That's so incredibly high. And what she also has found and what sort of appeared also in my study is that 
People often believe when things didn't go the way that they had planned that it was their fault. They internalize the sense of self-blame when the blame is actually at the foot of this system that needs to change. Alison, why do you think men saw and continue to see women more as opportunities to profit than as human beings with agency? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I mean, I think that four million people give birth in the country each year. It is the you know main reason that people go into a hospital environment. And it's, I mean, really, it's just so shocking to me that you can't sort of expect this experience or anticipate this experience to be one in which you are centered in your own care. I mean, we've seen the research that shows us the, like, vast amount of disbelief that that men have in women's stories of pain. And this is particularly true for Black women. Their pain is not believed in hospital settings, in birth settings. Um, and then when we speak up about our pain or about what we're experiencing, we're often penalized. The research shows us that too. You know, you have to be a good patient. And I think some of this, you know, dates back to some of these sort of old obstetric ideas that women's bodies are not really able to birth. There's an idea called the obstetric dilemma, which is, you know, sort of been absorbed into taking care of pregnant people. It's an idea from anthropology. And it really says that the birthing body is inherently flawed. The female body is inherently flawed. The pelvis is this certain size and it, you know, expands, of course, to allow a baby to be born, but that the babies are born sort of helpless. And so this is flawed design. That's what this anthropological theory says. But this theory has been absorbed as reality. And we see it show up when there's a prediction that a big baby means we have to operate. When we know from the research that you can't tell the size of a baby sort of in the later weeks of pregnancy. The best measurement we have of that is looking at an ultrasound scan from weeks about 11 to 14. That's when we have the best sense of the size of the baby. After that, we don't really know, but there's a lot of intervention. Men are intervening, male doctors and those that they train, um, the profession of obstetrics is, you know, becoming a very female profession, but it's still being, they're still being trained in this patriarchal way of sort of going in and saying, you know what, we're going to take the baby now because we think the baby is too big. Not we're going to listen to you. We're going to listen to what you believe to your body. It's all sort of, I think some of it is fear. It's fear of the birthing body and this procreative, generative, incredible, miraculous process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, being a woman is terrifying, part in part because of that. Um, <laughs> because having a child is the weirdest and scariest and most out of control. Even even like without the medicalization aspect of it, just like your body just being like, whoop, doing this. Don't care what you think. Just going to do it. Uh, pretty wild. Um, so, Allison, you've done so much research into this in the, into this area, into the experience of of motherhood and birth. If you were to meet somebody who had just found out they were pregnant for the first time, what information would you want to convey to them about how to avoid or how to head off some of the things that turn out to be traumatic for first-time moms? Thank you for asking that. I would recommend the book because I think that you can read in there what you need to know to keep yourself safe. But this actually happens to me quite commonly. Like you, I have a lot of friends who are sort of in this experience right now or sort of have been recently. And I really approach every conversation um, 
with a listening, with listening to what the this person in front of me seems like she needs. Um, because everyone, everyone is really different and approaching this differently. And I think if we had a culture and a society that really shared birth stories and celebrated birth stories and incorporated them into our wider cultural narratives, then this just would be part of this conversation that we were often and always having and celebrating. Birth is something beautiful and miraculous to celebrate. Um, It doesn't have to be this sort of taboo, um, sort of painful, traumatic experience that it is for so many people. And it's not their fault that it is that experience. It's that our society sort of silences these stories. And so we don't know what's possible. We're not told what's possible. But if the stories were more um, more frequent, we could all sort of share in this knowledge that this is a beautiful experience. This is a an experience that we never forget. It's practically touching the sublime, one of the rare times in your life that you do that. And that's sort of what I want people who are pregnant to walk away with understanding. Like you are inherently so very powerful. All of the forces in the world from, you know, sort of the medical industrial complex to the major societal narratives are telling you that that's not true. They're telling you your body is flawed. And so that disconnects us from what we know to be our own power. And I want everyone to know that like that power is there and it's accessible. And it's important to find providers who you align with, like you did, Aaron, people who you trust, who you can say, um, this is how I want my birth to go. How are you going to support me in that? Allison, thank you so much for writing the book. And thank you so much for joining us. Allison Yarrow's book, Birth Control, The Insidious Power of Men Over Motherhood, is available wherever you can get books. Thank you for having me. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop
And welcome back. We have reached the part of the show where we get into things that are not that serious, but we care about a lot regardless. It is Sanity Corner slash I Feel Petty. Before we get to that, some announcements for the class. In case you missed it, the third and uh, unfortunately not final GOP primary debate happened last night. But no need to lose brain cells watching the rerun. Catch Thursday's Pod Save America episode for some sweet political analysis, everything you missed from the debate, and hear Election Day reactions from Dan, Favreau, and Tommy. All in one place. New episodes of Pod Save America drop every Tuesday and Thursday. And a big shout out to the What A Day newsletter team who just hit 200,000 subscribers. That's amazing. Yeah. That's like 200 of the town I grew up in. (laughs) The What A Day newsletter is a go-to source for the day's latest news sent straight to your inbox every night. All right. Alyssa, Sanity Corner or I Feel Petty this week? You guys, I have a Sanity Corner because the world is very dark and I need something to engage my brain. And Barbara Streisand has delivered her 900-page memoir drop this week. And guys, okay, so like to just put into context, I nine hundred pages. Nine hundred pages. Nine. That's like a, that's like Walter Isaacson writes on Einstein length. Yes, that's so long. She. <laughs> that's team of rivals. It is, <laughs> except Juanita. It's like Judy Garland and Ryan O'Neill and so many other people. Oh! I my copy arrives today, but I have not been able to wait. So I have read every article. I have watched every interview, and like to put my love for Barbara Streisand into context. Uh, I saw her with my best friend, Kara, at her last concert in Brooklyn. Babs back in Brooklyn at Barclays. Um, Grew up watching The Way We Were, which is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. It was lovely, wasn't it, Hubble? Um, But so (laughs) her book is out. And the thing is, there is so much I did not know about Barbara Streisand. I did not Mm. know how uh, her father passed away when she was just a couple months old. She grew up really, really poor. She used to fill a hot water bottle up and pretend it was a doll. And do you know what she Aww. did? Now, in her Malibu home in the basement, she has a dollhouse that she built with all these dolls she has collected. She, when she was very, very young, she was 18 or 19, she got her first deal with Columbia Records. And she said, I don't care how much money you pay me, but you have to let me uh, maintain creative control. And like, there are just all of these lessons that I feel like we're hearing people struggle with now that she was very prescient about back when she was young. And like, there was one bit of advice that, you know, I always joke that I'm the oldest person on this podcast, but there... She told a story about Judy Garland where they were singing together and they were holding hands and she realized that like Judy Garland was nervous. Judy Garland, obviously older than uh, I know this Barbara moment. was. Oh, I love it. And she said that she held her hand and they talked about it and she said, it gets harder when you get older because your fear of failing is stronger when you're young and you're wild. You're like, fuck it. Maybe I'll make it. Maybe I won't. I'm going to give it a shot. But when you get older, the fear of failing is so much more real. And Barbara Streisand admitted that she has a fear now of singing in public. And when Uh asked, they were like, well, Barbara, like, what's the tea? Juanita, exactly to your question. She's like, yeah. when I turned in the first draft, when I turned in the first uh, draft of the manuscript, her editor was like, 
you got to leave some blood on the page. You can't, you got to get in there. Like you got to spare people. So 900 pages arriving to my house today. I cannot wait. It will be the longest book I have ever read. And I'm sure I will sob. (laughs) I have downloaded more, more of her albums and it's going to be a very Barbara uh, holiday season here at my house. (laughs) I'm so excited for this. And I distinctly remember the moment that they're talking about when she did the duet with Judy Garland. Mm -hmm. Uh, Happy days are here again and forget your troubles. And I was just like, oh my God, it makes so much sense because uh, they were clutching each other throughout that entire performance. And I loved it. But now I love it even more. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. The last thing that makes her a bad bitch is that when Siri, you know, Amazon Siri came out, she, um, she, it didn't say her name correctly. If you asked who was the star of Funny Girl, it said Barbara Streisand. And Mm. she couldn't get it fixed. So she just called Tim Cook and said, can you please? And he did. (laughs) Wow. We call that a flex. Yeah, that's a flex. That's a flex. Wow, what a good memoir season. Yeah. Britney Spears, Julia Fox, Barbara Streisand. Who else? Oh, it's there's going to be more, but there's enough tea for like the entire year. Um, I love this. Mine is like a it's like a petty and it doesn't matter. Uh, but there there was an article in Fortune um, this week. Uh, and the headline was Victoria's Secret, the hypersexualized iconic millennial brand tried to remake itself as feminist and Gen Z saw right through it. I don't like that characterization that Gen Z saw right through it. I think <laughs> I think that they did, but I also think that like we lived through the bullshit that ding, was ding, the ding. height yes. of raunch culture. We fucking lived through it. The humiliation of like getting a new boyfriend and going to Victoria's Secret and buying awful underwear that was really overpriced and signing up for your first credit card. Oh, And like three months later being like, I now owe $700 for this dumb thing that I bought this boy that I don't even, for this boy I don't even talk to anymore. Like the pressure for us to be sexy all the time, specifically in that Victoria's Secret branded way, the Mm. event television that was that, uh, that, fashion show where women, the women who were in it had to train like athletes and were not allowed to drink water so that they would be more cut on the day Mm -hmm. of the show. And they were oiled up and they were presented like they were, they were product in a fancy brothel. And like, we lived through this and I think we're older and wiser now. And it's just like, I don't care how you fucking rebrand. I'm not having any of it. Do you know what my confusion was? I was what? like, isn't Victoria's Secret Gen X? Like, that shit was in the mall when I was in middle school. <laughs> like, how is yeah. that? Well, the, I think the height of it was like, remember, remember like the late 90s when like lad mags were huge in the U.S.? Like Maxim, oh, the yes. Hot 100. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there was like that sort of like push toward Y2K and then into the first decade after Y2K. They've erased it was the like, pre-angels period of Victoria's right. Secret. Christina right. Aguilera's dirty with two R's or whatever. Right. Like, everybody was like, their thongs were, their thongs Songs were out. Girls were like, girls were kissing each other at parties to like make the boys like them. Like it was so, it was such a self-esteem. It like, a girl's gone wild. It like thrived on our low self-esteem. Oh my gosh, yes. It, it It made us feel like we were doing something wrong if we weren't acting exactly the way that like 
a men's magazine would imagine that you act in a fantasy. And it was such a humiliating time to be a teenager or in your 20s and a straight girl and know what you were doing didn't feel like authentic to who you were. But you're like, I don't know. I guess this is how I do it. No, I don't. I think Gen Z did see through it. But millennials were just like, fuck you. (laughs) I love that as soon as you started. I was like, I know what she's going to say. We saw it first, god we, damn it. Like, no, because we had exactly we right. we had to live through it. We had to yeah. we lived through that time and it was so bad. It was such a bad time to be like a young woman. It was such a like everybody who made it through that time and emerged with intact self-esteem or salvageable self-esteem accomplished something pretty impressive. Like the pressure on people to have like perfect bodies and show off our bodies all the time. Jessica Simpson being called fat in tabloids oh, when she my looked goodness. beautiful. Like all of this messaging, it was so harmful. And Victoria's Secret was just the apex of it. Yeah. The, I, I like fuck Victoria's Secret forever. In, and and not, not only because of the Epstein tie, but you no. know. You know what it prompted yeah. me to do? Uh, instead of, I went to Victoria's Secret to the mall, Hudson Valley Mall in high school. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to start dressing like Eddie Vedder instead. And that worked out much better for me. <laughs> I'm dressing like Eddie Vedder now. It's uh, so you got to layer up. You got to layer up in uh, in the West Coast climate. It's like 60 degrees when we wake up. It's 80 degrees by noon. What are you going to, got to Eddie Vedder it up? I'm cozy Eddie Vedder. <laughs> <laughs> you, the other thing that this brings up for me is... Specifically, Tyra Banks' transition from Victoria's mm-hmm. Secret Angel to America's Next Top Model and the toxicity that she spewed on that platform, too. And it's just like, yikes. I don't even remember the peak years of America's Next Top Model, but I do know that it did damage for, like, <laughs> it, it, it feels like it picked up where Victoria's Secret left off to continue another layer of damage in the form of this television show that, yeah, yeah. was very harmful. There was something so sadistic about the entire culture that led to that and included that, like making women who had beautiful long hair like shave their heads and filming them crying and making that like part of the teaser for the episode. Or also calling them fat when none of them at all were ever. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, No, we uh, Gen Z is on to you. Fine. But we've been on to you for longer because we actually (laughs) we had to like live through your bullshit Victoria's Secret. Um, Okay, Juanita. Sanity Corner, I I'm feel gonna, petty. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take us back into a Sanity Corner with something that I'm just really excited to do that because I'm chasing joy. Like, I'm riding high off of these election results. Um, I'm feeling good. So it's November, the first week of November, and I'm going to decorate my first of three Christmas trees. Yes, Because I Juanita. said, I don't care. Judge me. And shout out to my father-in-law, Dan. Dan, if you're listening, thank you for texting me. Dan texted me two days before the election said, is the first tree up yet? And I was like, Dan, (laughs) Dan, give me a day. Give me two days because it's coming. And I want to emphasize first of three because, yes, I have three Christmas trees in my home. Juanita, I have three. I have three. (gasps) Alyssa, I have three. Soulmate, yes. Wait, do, are they like, themed, Juanita? Do you have like a specific uh, idea for each one? I haven't graduated from theme to themes yet. I just know I have them in strategic locations so that like when I come out of my bedroom in the morning, there's a Christmas tree to greet me. When I walk downstairs, there's a Christmas tree to greet me. When I go to the family room, there's a Christmas tree to greet me. Like I just want to I want to immerse myself in that joy. Alyssa, I feel like you get me on a whole nother <laughs> so level deeply, now. <laughs> so deeply. Juanita, I have the retro pink Christmas tree. Tree. 
Okay. My mind is blown. Okay, I have the retro pink crystal. That one's upstairs. So if I'm working up in the loft, I can see that. And I turn it on. Yes. It's on all day long. Then I have the bird Christmas tree. That one goes up first oh. because to me, it's just seasonal, not Christmas related. Okay. Okay. And it's uh, easy. Yes. And then do you have different colored lights? Do you have, are you a white I tree, do. a color tree? What's your I, light? I, I have the lights that I can change yes. into like color chasing lights or just like flickering white ones. So I go back and forth on all of them. But it is pure joy. And my husband actually yes. said to me, he's like, so, uh, oh, because I said it was like 30 degrees this morning. He's like, oh, the tree's going up. And I was like, not yet. But I did. I am. I am ordering the Christmas wreaths today. I uh, love when the partners know what is up. Come on, it's, my yes. <laughs> my husband and I are in a silent war currently. Well, it's not very <gasps> silent because I cannot be silent in wars. But um, <laughs> we, so we we like kind of divide and conquer when it comes to Halloween, holiday decorating. He loves decorating outside for Halloween, and I completely support him. I think it's great, and I like help yeah. him. But it's his plan. You know, he he does all the logistics of that. He's got the vision. Exactly. And then I take care of Christmas. Now, my husband has not yet taken down the Halloween decorations, and I think it's specifically because he doesn't want me putting the Christmas lights up. <gasps> it's a protest. It's, time. it's explicitly I being, protest. I think he's being passive aggressive. He doesn't want me putting up oh, the Christmas lights. Oh, that's direct. Well, What's yeah, passive about this? <laughs> we've, still, we've still, I'm like, I'm going to put Santa hats on the fake graves in our yard if you don't that's iconic. take them down. I know. If you don't Ooh, take them down. Yes. Santa died 25 times and he's buried in our yard. <laughs> the skeleton, also Santa. All of the the scary things are Santa. The Grim Reaper, Santa Grim Reaper. No, I, I he's I, I'm ready. I'm raring to go. I'm ready for oh, this I year. Love a showdown. To kinda, I'm I'm ready for this year to wind down and and all that's standing in between me and holiday cheer is my husband's <laughs> refusal to remove the car the uh, styrofoam graves from our front yard. So <laughs> Juanita, thank you so much for joining us today. This Thanks was for having me. Such a delight. Alyssa, thank you for being my ride or die per usual. Um, when I was up at 4 a.m. this morning due to oh. random insomnia, um, I texted the Hysteria production thread on uh, on my on my phone, and Alyssa texts back off thread, oh, my God, you're up so early. Yeah. Like, that's... <laughs> That's friendship. That's friendship. <laughs> Thank you for looking out for me, Alyssa. Thank you to Allison Yarrow for joining us for the enlightening interview. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us this week. There will be more hysteria for you next week. Don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on IG, Twitter, and TikTok. Subscribe to Hysteria on YouTube for access to video versions of your favorite segments and other exclusive content. And if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a nice review. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our senior producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. And Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer. Fiona Pestana is our associate producer. The show is engineered and edited by Jordan Cantor. We get audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our video producers are Rachel Gajewski and Megan Patzel. And thank you to Julia Beach, Ewa Okolate, Adia Hill, and David Tolls for production support every week. 